Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Marsha's bar encapsulated her vibe. It was a potent mix of music, politics, and partying. Is anybody having fun out there yet? We're rocking against violence tonight. And I think it's for a pretty good cause. And look around you and see all the people you're here with and think about this cause and think why we're all here together and realize that we can't get anything done by ourselves and on our own because all of you need each other to rock against violence. Everybody needs somebody. Everybody That's Shank, Swing, and the Divots, one of the bar's regular local bands. They were playing at one of the many benefits Marsha hosted at the Underground Railroad. In 1982, six years after she moved to Morgantown, Marsha opened her bar at 123 Pleasant Street in what had been a bar and music venue called Mateo's. But when Marsha took over, she really upped the game. One of the first things she did to redecorate was commission a life-size mural of one of her sheroes, Harriet Tubman. But Marsha's transformation of the bar went way beyond the cosmetic. Thanks to her vision, what had been for many decades a local dive bar became the beating heart of Morgantown's music scene and a beacon of progressive political action. This place, this time, is why people remember Marsha as a folk hero. Marsha's back-to-the-land era had ended, but in Morgantown, she was still fueled by the same three M's that got us down to West Virginia in the first place. Music, magic, and marijuana. The bar was the perfect place where she could continue channeling all three, until one of those M's got out of hand. I'm Karen Zellermeyer. And I'm Jamie Zellermeyer. And this is I Was Never There, Episode 4. I hear a voice in the morning and she calls me. Radio reminds me of my home far away. Driving down the road, I get a feeling like I should have been home yesterday, yesterday. Marsha's relationship to the first M, music, ran deep. It reached all the way back to the 50s, when she sang at her synagogue as a girl. In the 1960s, when rock music and the Grateful Dead arrived on the scene, she was hooked, and she became a deadhead. In the 70s, 
Marcia started taking trips to Jamaica. Those visits reinforced her love of reggae. And Marcia didn't just listen to music. In Morgantown, she was part of an all-woman band called No Shame. You know, Marcia wasn't the greatest singer, but she certainly was the loudest. <laughs> that was Lisa Sarno. She was the drummer of No Shame and a former bartender at the Underground. When Marcia opened the bar, there was a craving for an alternative music scene within this small college town, and she saw an opening. She wasn't afraid to take risks and book bands playing a newer style of music, punk. I am Jello Biafra, and I was the singer mainspring of Dead Kennedys, and it was probably my decision to try and get a gig at the Underground Railroad because I heard about it. Jello was a big deal in the 80s punk scene. He also co-founded a well-known record label called Alternative Tentacles. For the Dead Kennedys, he wrote songs with titles meant to shock, like Let's Lynch the Landlord and Chicken Chick Conformist. They were all delivered in his signature, unconventional vibrato, which is on display here in the Dead Kennedys song, Holiday in Cambodia. Today, Jello still likes being inflammatory. Google Jello Biafra, and one of the first images that comes up is a photo of him flipping off the camera wearing a black shirt with big white letters declaring, Trump hates me. He's still got some rock star tendencies. For example, he showed up 45 minutes late to our Zoom interview. Even so, we were excited to talk to him, and he was curious to hear about what might have happened to Marsha. And when you say still alive, does this mean people know what became of her now? People do not know. No, I think it was. I mean, the, I mean, the two theories flying around was that she was abducted and murdered, that she went into witness protection. You seem to be shaking your head at that one. But uh, obviously, she had enemies. Because Jello was such an important force on the punk scene and he performed at the bar a few times, we wanted him to tell us more about how this music came to be a movement and the underground's role in that. Well, punk, and especially hardcore, which was a more extreme form of punk, a lot of us just got more and more intense and more and more extreme and more committed to building the underground, you know, with our own labels, uh, supporting independent stores, and of course the venues. Plus, by then, uh, the Fresh Fruit Variety and Vegetables album that Kennedy's did, the first one, you know, a lot of people got into this through that album, and there was the P.O. box on the back for alternative tentacles. But slowly but surely, people would be writing in from other parts of the country and even other parts of the world, they would write in a scene report. By 82, 83, people were writing in, you know, we, we got a scene here now, we got a venue, and, the, the, we, and this is my band, or we know this band, or whatever. I mean, the first thing I ever got from anybody there was an attack on a particular person and band in Pittsburgh and a venue there called the Electric Banana. 
And it's that most people are actually going down to Morgantown in West Virginia, that's right below the border near Pittsburgh, and that's where the real scene is. The report was right. The scene in Morgantown was real. Any night of the week, you could see music at the underground. Thursdays were for the new wave bands like Velez Manifesto. On Friday, you could see reggae in bands like Small Axe. The dead cover band Smokestack Lightning was a Saturday fixture along with other hippie rock bands. And if you showed up at the bar on any weekend night, you could count on seeing a local punk or hardcore band like The Inbred. You had a good chance of catching a famous act, too. Henry Rollins, Sonic Youth, Black Flag, The Butthole Surfers, Fugazi, The Flaming Lips, along with The Dead Kennedys, all played the underground. It wasn't a bar with music. It was a music venue with alcohol. That was Michelle Wolford again, the underground's manager. When you stop to think about that observation, what Marsha did was impressive. This woman, who had never owned a bar or run a music venue, created a thriving alternative music hub in West Virginia. She gave all kinds of musicians seasoned and young, professional and amateur, local and national, and even international, a place to debut their music, express themselves, and develop their craft. It changed my life, totally changed my life. It put me on a path to music that I, as my friend Bill Kirchin says, uh, it ruined me for real work for the rest of my life, but. uh... (laughs) That's Todd Birch. Today, he's a professional musician who lives in Parkersburg, West Virginia. Back in the 80s, Todd got deep in the punk scene. It all started at the underground. I'm still confused at what, uh, you know, I could, we could, we could do an entire podcast on my confusion about what punk rock really is and what it means. But I wanted to discover punk rock and write about it. And I thought that place, you know, that underground railroad, I'd never step foot in there. I thought that's where it happens. The first time Todd showed up, he was blown away by what he saw. All these interesting non-mainstream people hanging out and having a good time. Randy, down at the end of the bar, drinking a beer, under a poster of one of Todd's heroes, John Lennon, and a woman running the bar, plus these really talented local bands up on stage. And I found out that these guys were writing all their own songs, and it just blew me away. And I knew right then and there I had to start a band. And he did a punk band called The Larrys. A few years later, Todd started a second band called 63 Eyes, which is still around today. Todd started a third band, too, Triple Shot, a classic country cover band. He credits all of these bands to the bar. I always tell people that the Underground Railroad, it's uh, the center of my musical universe, that stage. That's where it started for me, and that's my most comfortable performance spot is, is right there. When Todd first found the underground, he was a sophomore in college, a kid from a conservative West Virginia town who dabbled in music. At that point, he hadn't seen much of the world. 
When he walked through the door, he didn't even know who Harriet Tubman was. Marsha made sure to change that. Being around Marsha, people like Marsha and Michelle Wolford, strong women with these wonderful liberal views. I look back on my, you know, my embedded racism and sexism was uh, cleansed, <laughs> you know, it was, it was purged and without me really realizing it was happening. Marsha had a huge influence on Todd, politically and artistically. It was special what she, how she would encourage artists and nurture what they, what they had. But I'm sure it brought her a lot of joy seeing all these, all of us, I guess, growing artistically. And, and as we grew artistically, I think our lives kind of it gave us purpose and we were able to help others, you know. So nobody really can know how far this seed that was planted there at the Underground Railroad by Marsha. It's amazing, isn't it? Our dear friend, D.L., confirmed Todd's account of the bar. What Marsha created at the Underground had a profound impact. I mean, it wasn't even just a music bar. I mean, it was just a social change community hub. Rock Against Violence, Rock Against Racism, Rock Against Apartheid, Duff McIntosh, who was there from the very beginning and designed the flyers for the underground, recounted all these political benefits Marsha was constantly hosting at the bar. Well, there were actual left-wing groups in town that had, you know, members and even offices. There was an anti-apartheid group and there was a Latin American Solidarity Committee, you know, working on all the Central American wars and such. And so a lot of these groups would have benefits to raise money and they'd get like two or three bands to agree to play for free. I remember when she brought the experimental theater group, The Living Theater, and the godfather of psychedelics, Timothy Leary, and one of her favorite radicals, Abby Hoffman. She especially loved Abby because they had a personal connection. They came from the same Massachusetts town and they were both in the same Jewish youth group as teens. Even when there wasn't an overtly political event, Marsha's political priorities were always front and center. They were right there in the name, staring down at you from the wall, the Underground Railroad. As Keith Brand remembers, you couldn't miss it. The big memory for me is that beautiful mural of Harriet Tubman uh, that was on the wall right behind the stage. And, you know, many people open bars. Not many people own bars with a conscience. Every night at the Underground was, in a way, a political statement. Marsha blended so many people. We had the queers, we had the fucking bikers and the hippies and the, the punks, the straight edges. They were all in that space. And we had to get along. We had to get along. That was mandatory. We had to get along. That's Lisa Sarno again, the no-shame drummer. The underground was a big part of her young adulthood. She was a musician who played there, a bartender who worked there, and for a time, a tenant who lived there in one of the apartments above the bar. I don't know how much I'm supposed to talk about, but yeah, I've had quite a few adventures with Marsha. Everything's right out on the table. Is it right out on the table? You wouldn't believe everything we've heard. <laughs> you have no idea the thing. I was never there.
Lisa was 19 when she moved from Connecticut to West Virginia and found the bar, the earth house, and the whole scene, Marsha's world. And like Marsha did for so many other young people, she changed Lisa's life. She accepted me too as an African-American woman. That was radical, that was radical itself. If you look around the whole underground, you won't see too much, you won't see that. And I was in the middle of it. She reached out for me. The underground was a place for everyone. Lisa remembers Marsha made that crystal clear. If you weren't willing to respect everyone's right to be there, you were out. Yeah, it was a pack night. It was packed, and it was a hardcore band. And so, check me out, the kids were doing mosh pits. And for whatever reason that night, there was a group of white males, young white males, who came to the club who were moshing. There was things going wrong. And I remember that. I remember bartending. I remember there being it loud, it's chaotic, and things aren't going well, right? Somebody came to us and said girls were being hurt. And then there was like Nazi stuff going on, skinhead. It was this whole vibe. And I just remember being at the end of the bar and Marsha coming over. She's so short sometimes, you couldn't see her. You know, the bar was tall. And she's like, come with me. And I just put my shit down and walked out from behind the bar and followed Marsha. And she took us, she wound us around to the front of the stage. There we are, just standing there. The, the shortest woman in the room is Marsha Ferber, you know? And then there's me, 20-year-old black chick, and I just knew to stay still. I just knew, I kept watching Marsha like kind of out of the corner of my eye, and she was just fixed, straight forward on the eyes of this one guy. And they were like, like they were faced off. And it got real tense, and one of them balled his fist, and it's down, I'm ready for it. And I ball up my fist, and I just remember Marsha, her left hand just grabbing my my hand and just squeezing it, just, you know, and I just knew we weren't speaking to each other, but it was like crazy, and I was like, all right, we're not gonna act that way. That's not what we're gonna do. What the fuck are we gonna do? We just moved them. She just took a step further and they backed up. And she took another step and somehow the crowd just parted. They spit on us and they called us names and they threatened us and she just did not back down and we just, we just kept walking. And we were able to get them turned around to the back by the bar, just taking one step out of the time, just being silent. And as soon as we got them to step backwards, Randy grabs like one of the dudes and another one of Randy's biker friends fucking grabs another dude, you know? And whoop, they whisk him like right out the door, right out on Unpleasant Street. Bam, gone. Mom, had you ever heard that story? I didn't know that exact story, but I knew Marsha, so there's nothing about it that surprised me. Um, she was a badass. She had standards, she codes of conduct, what was acceptable and what wasn't, and she wasn't gonna take shit from anybody. Did you enjoy working at the bar? I loved working at the bar. 
I mean, I was like this little therapist. I'd serve drinks and listen in on people's conversations and offer my two cents, and that's what I did all night. But I, I have to tell you, the bar was very different when I worked there. It was the very beginning. It was rock and roll and reggae and the Grateful Dead. It wasn't punk and mosh pits, and it was just a very different vibe. It was the bar's peace, love, and understanding era. Yes, it was. <laughs> The bar was a space for the people in Marsh's community to be themselves. But there was one problem. If you weren't old enough to drink, you couldn't see shows there. So to make sure underage kids could see their favorite bands, Marsha started booking alcohol-free matinee shows on the weekends. Duff and Michelle and the rest of the staff would clear all the liquor off the shelves and lock it up so kids could come into the bar. But moving the bottles was a pain in the ass and not something the staff wanted to do on a regular basis. And that's where the second M comes in. Magic. Marsha worked that magic and conjured up yet another community space, the Dry House. The Dry House opened in 1986, right next door to the underground, connected by an internal door. It was an all-ages venue that served vegan food. There were big red leather booths where the kids could all pile in. A pool table, eclectic light fixtures from Jack's flea market stall, and a cigarette machine in an underage venue. It was the 80s. No liquor meant no profit, but it was kind of a community outreach project all along. Marsha really believed underage kids needed a place of their own. And she was right. The Dry House quickly became the hangout for a specific kind of teen in Morgantown. They called themselves Dry Housers. They were freaks and weirdos. They had weird hair, they wore pajamas, but they were all very intelligent. I noticed immediately these were probably National Honor Society candidates who just had a different way of looking at the world and like different music than the mainstream. That was attractive to me. That's Michelle Wolford again. When it first opened, she managed the dry house and had a lot of contact with the kids who spent time there. In the safety of that space, kids came into their own. One of them was hardcore dry houser Sean Coombs. As soon as I kind of fell into the scene down at the, the dry house in the Underground Railroad, I ended up pretty much living there. We would go, holy shit, this changes everything. And I bloomed there. Like I knew I had a tribe then. I had a posse. I wasn't some, I was a misfit, but like I, I was in really good company to be a misfit. Sean had one of those lives that was both very easy and very hard. He came from a wealthy family. And at 12, he began a lifelong battle with depression. As an adult, he struggled with addiction. Once he got clean, he became enormously generous in his mission to help people in recovery. Sadly, Sean died in his sleep in December of 2020. We were lucky that we got to talk to him before that, and he told us all about how important the dry house was to him as a teen. It was a safe place to go after school, where our friends were, and we could get something to eat, hang out, figure out what our plans were, and then, you know, I mean, the show, the next show that was coming up, Naked Ray Gun, or who, I mean, it could be anybody, really. Um, 
So we were right there with what became our rock and roll heroes. And as Sean told us, it wasn't just the space and the music that the kids adored. It was Marsha. We all felt like we were her favorite kid. It was a personal relationship, and I could share with her anything that was happening in my life with just absolute acceptance. She was like, she's like, mom. Not like mom or mother, like ma. Did you call her mom? Oh, yeah, yeah. Ma, yeah. In a way, the bars were the perfect swan song for Marsha. They combined all the things she loved and was best at. Creating community, advocating for justice, and having fun. One of my favorite memories of Marsha was in 1983 when I was bartending at the Underground Railroad. And um, the Grateful Dead were coming to town, which you know was a big, big event in our lives. The concert was happening out at the stadium at West Virginia University, and we all went. Marsha and I went tripping. And as soon as the concert was over, Marsha and I knew the bar was going to be packed. Everybody was going to go to the Underground Railroad after the concert. So we ran back there to work the bar. And as we predicted, it was jammed. It was way over the occupancy allowance. I mean, it was packed and sweaty and dark, and there was a band playing, and everybody was happy and psyched from the concert. I was bartending, and Marsha was bartending, which is always a disaster. It was always a disaster when she bartended. She was a terrible bartender, but we were both back there really trying to hold it together, tripping our asses off. And at a certain point, we just looked at each other and said, fuck this, let's go dance. And we did. And I remember the two of us leaving the bar with all these people on the other side of the bar saying, hey, wait a minute, where are you going? We need our drinks. And Marcia just said, come on guys, figure it out. And we went and danced and we danced all night. Whether it was at the bar or the Earth House or an empty interstate somewhere in New Jersey, life with Marsha sounded like it was a lot of fun. But that emphasis on fun created problems. Michelle said Marsha kept running into the same challenge at the bars that she did with all her business ventures. I didn't handle money, so I don't really know. I just knew that we were always in the hole. You know, we always had something we couldn't pay. Money. There was never enough of it. So Keith told us that Marsha did what she'd always done to keep things afloat. The pot business funded everything. It funded Earth House, it funded the bar, and it funded a lot of the things that she did on the side. All of these different ventures that Marsha had all sprung from her pot business. She relied on the third M, marijuana. I've always found it hard to understand the contradiction. Marsha funded a safe space for teens by selling drugs. But Marsha was booking bands four or five nights a week, and sometimes as many as eight on a Saturday night. Bands are expensive, and shit costs money. So she boosted her drug sales. 
that worked for a while. But as Marsha's drug business expanded, she started getting involved with more than marijuana. And from there, things with Marsha and at the underground changed. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for doing this. Sorry for the... (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. That's okay. So I'm Jamie. And I'm Karen. Phil Scott. Thank you. We love you. By the way, your your son is just a really good human. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. In my culture, we call him a mensch. (laughs) (laughs) A what? That's Major Phil Scott of the West Virginia University Police Department. He's also P.J. Scott's dad. Because Phil Scott was on the force when Marsha disappeared and drugs were such a big part of Marsha's world, we thought it would be a good idea to ask him about Morgantown's drug scene in the 80s. Of course, marijuana has always been a thing in a college community, but cocaine was the hard drug that we heard a lot about. Uh, powdered cocaine was the biggie. That was what the drug guys were working those cases um, at that point. It wasn't unusual to uh, stop somebody on a traffic stop or arrest somebody for something and they'd have it on them. Coke was big business in the 80s. It was expensive and it was in demand. Fortunately, it was never my drug of choice, but Marsha loved it. I never really knew the full story about her relationship to the stuff. She never talked about it with me because she knew I didn't approve. But people said it changed her. Randy told us that in the last year before Marcia disappeared, she started having dramatic mood swings. During one particularly bad argument, she even threw an ashtray at him. I noticed a change in her. I mean, there was a change, and it wasn't just from our relationship. You know, it wasn't just that. It was, uh, it seemed to me like it was more than that. I remember one time, man, she just seemed so whacked out, just crazy. That's, that sticks in my mind. We can't know for sure if all that was thanks to cocaine. But Lisa remembers whatever Marcia was doing with drugs, it wasn't confined to her personal life. It showed up at the underground, too. I saw different people coming into the bar, not staying all night, you know, just coming in for a few minutes. Uh, I think the famous phrase is, where Marsha at? So uh, we, we saw things change. By that point, Jamie and Sarah and I had moved up to New York. So I wasn't around to see the shift, but I heard about it. An old friend of mine in Marsha's named Robert H. was a touring musician and also a bartender. He was actually the person who taught me how to bartend. Marsha told him he always had a job at the underground when he wanted it. But when he came back to Morgantown six months before Marsha disappeared and she invited him back to work, he turned her down. He told us that at that time, things at the bar felt too dark. We interviewed another old friend of ours, a fabulous harmonica player named Trip Henderson. He loved Marsha. Marsha was someone who I thought was a beautiful human being, and I I would do anything for Marsha. But he told us a story about Marsha and drugs that really upset me. And she shared other things with me as well that were a little bit more potent. Like? Uh, Like 
heroin. Um, she shared it once with me, I think as a lesson, basically. It was at the Underground Railroad. She said she had a little bit. She said, I'm going to share it with you. You're going to like it. You're going to want to come back and do more, but I want you just to know how strong it is, and I advise you to stay away from it. So she, we went into the office, and she gave me like a like a match head's worth to snort, essentially. And I remember walking from her office to go sit at the bar, and by the time I got to the bar, I don't think I'd ever felt better. It was remarkable. But of course, it lasted a short amount of time, and she wisely left the building you know before i even got to the bar because she probably knew that i'd come back and knock on the door which i did and thankfully she was brilliant and uh, in addition to being a wonderful person and i realized at that point that just because it felt good doesn't mean it is good necessarily and that was you know my one and only time that was a fucked up story it made clear to me what i didn't see at the time marcia was playing with fire. I loved Marsha's boldness. I related to it. That was one reason we were so close. But after hearing these things from Randy and Lisa and Tripp, it's clear to me that Marsha's fearlessness became recklessness. And that those three M's, magic, music, and marijuana, became a tangled mess. Marcia and I never considered marijuana a drug. I still feel that way. As we liked to say back then, marijuana was an herb. Reagan was a dope. But heroin and cocaine are a totally different story. Knowing what I know now, it seems to me like Marcia was becoming cavalier about drugs that were way more dangerous and had much bigger consequences. Marcia never let my mom into that part of her life. So to get a better understanding of what went down, we had to find people she did let in. That meant more cold calls. My favorite. Hello. Hi, I'm trying to reach Marty. Is this Marty? Who's calling? Uh, my name is Jamie Zellermeyer. I actually live in New York City, and um, I am actually working. I'm, I'm working on a podcast with my mom. My mom, my parents were very old friends of Marsha Ferber's, and so I yeah. was trying to reach Marty. <laughs> yeah, this is Marty. Oh, hi. How are you? Good. And from there, we got a big surprise. My mom and I have been working on this podcast. It's not out yet. And we're looking at both our own lives and how our lives intersected with Marsha's and a little bit, and also kind of looking into her disappearance and the theories behind her disappearance. Oh, I know exactly where she is and what happened to her. I Was Never There is a Wonder Media Network production. It's hosted by me, Karen Zellermeyer, and my daughter, Jamie, and it's based on our lives. It's produced by Allie Wolner, Lindsay Cradowill, Adesua Agbonile, and Liz Smith. It's edited by Jenny Kaplan and Liz Smith. 
Our executive producers are Jenny Kaplan, Jamie Zellermeyer, and Karen Zellermeyer. Production assistance by Alessandra Tejeda. Our music supervisor is Sarah Tembekchian. The theme music is Take Me Home, Country Roads by John Denver, performed by Brandy Carlisle. Special thanks to Larry Dowling for allowing us to use his interview with Michelle Wolford. If you're a fan of the show, we'd really appreciate your help in getting the word out. Send the show to a friend and leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to help others discover I Was Never There.